Do any of you get affected by the long, dark nights of winter? I do. At this time of year, when it's dark at four o'clock and not light again until nine the next morning, I can feel my spirit sinking. It's as if the gloom outside starts to take over my thinking. I have less energy, less creative spark, I'm less optimistic, rather more cynical. I can become quite miserable. And of course, I know what I need to do to fight this. I must get out into the light. This last week, I have forced myself to get out on my bike, even though it's been freezing. And after cycling in the sunshine, I felt so much better, so much more myself. Maybe you experienced something of this too. But of course, it's not just daylight that we need. We also need the light of hope. We all go through seasons in our lives that we would describe as dark times. Maybe we've become unwell or have recently been bereaved. Maybe there's a huge pressure at work or perhaps we've even lost our job. Maybe money is tight and we're not sure how we're going to cope. Maybe there is trouble in a relationship that we have or we're struggling to parent our children. Maybe we've become overwhelmed by the relentless pain we see on the news every day. We just cannot take it in anymore. We will have all been through moments like these. Moments where the darkness has seemed to descend and we can feel our spirits sinking. We're trying to hold on as best we can, but it's hard. We're desperate for the reassurance that everything will be okay. We long for the darkness to lift and the light to return once more. I'd like us to realise tonight that these feelings are nothing new. We do not get down and depressed because we are weak, but because we are human. Life is hard at times, and this has always been the experience of God's people. But there is good news, wonderful news. In Jesus, the light has come, and the light promises to come again. A light so great, the darkness cannot overcome it. And I hope we will all benefit from reflecting on this theme this evening. In the years leading up to that first Christmas, there was one prophecy that the Jews held on to, perhaps more than any other. It was verse 2 of our reading. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It was now 700 years since God had inspired Isaiah to speak that prophecy, yet God's people still hung on its every word. Why? Because darkness was their experience too. They were living with daily fear and uncertainty. They were living under the oppression of the Romans and wondered if they would ever be free. They longed for joy and peace to return. The people were desperate for hope. And in this promise of God to Isaiah, they believed that they had it. 
I want this evening for us to explore this prophecy of a great light for a few moments, to try and understand why it meant so much to those people long ago. The reason that this promise brought such hope to the Jews was because this promise itself was spoken into a time of crisis, a time when seemingly things could not get any worse. In Isaiah's day, the nations of Judah and Israel had chosen to go their own way. They turned their backs on God and consequently they plunged themselves into darkness. If you were in church this morning, you will have heard the situation where the Judean king Ahaz had a choice to make. God's people were being threatened by invading armies. Ahaz could either put his trust in God to defend the nation Or he could try and make a pact with his enemies. He could entrust himself to the mercy of Assyria. And what did Ahaz choose? He chose the wrong option. He chose Assyria. And we read this morning of how he took all the gold and the silver from the temple and tried to bribe them. That's right. Cowardly King Ahaz took his people away from God and into the hands of darkness. And unsurprisingly, it quickly backfires. Far from protecting them, Assyria begin to invade. And God's people become the prey of the very nation they disobediently had put their trust in. And so this prophecy begins in a place of gloom and distress. Assyria began by attacking the tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. The area that now flows through what is called the Hula Valley, where the great Jordan River flows to meet the Sea of Galilee. For the Assyrians, it was an obvious place to begin. That rich agricultural land could feed their troops, and the river and its valley was a major trade route that could be cut off. Assyria knew what they were doing. Their conquest was ruthless and brutal. And the final two verses of the previous chapter that Stan read to us sum up the horror of the time. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upwards, they will curse their king and their God. And they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. As Assyria attacked, the picture was very bleak <coughs> indeed. And of course, worst of all, was the people's dawning realisation that they were partly responsible. So knowing the situation, the very first word of this prophecy is vital. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. A word that clearly informs the hearer that a great turnaround is on the way. A great reversal in fortunes. Suddenly, everything is about to change. Yes, the people are in darkness now, but that is not where God intends to lead them. Yes, they have been truly humbled for their mistakes, but once they have learnt their lesson, he will lift the gloom and ease the distress. In fact, he's going to do it in such a way that it is unmistakable that God is at work. 
In the very area where the Assyrians attacked first, God promised a light will dawn. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, or better known to us as Galilee, hope will come. Now as Christians, the geography is already making our ears prick up. God is going to do something amazing in the rural land of Galilee, in the valley by the river Jordan, on the great lake that is there. But of course, we know far more than the Jews did back then. All they knew was that in this prophecy, God was promising to restore their fortunes, not because they deserved it, but because he loved them. God was going to prove once and for all that he was greater than even Assyria because he was going to transform the land that they had devastated. The people who had seen the most grief and despair would witness God's greatest joy and triumph. And this is what we get in verses 2 to 5, this depiction of this wonderful reversal in the land of Galilee. In verse 2, those who had seen so much darkness and death would see light and life in all its fullness. Verse 3, those who had seen with their own eyes their nation destroyed and their crops stolen would see the joy of harvest. In verse 4, those who had been taken captive would be set free. God would break the yoke of his people's oppressors. And verse 5, bringing all of this together, those people who had experienced such violence and bloodshed would know true peace. Military equipment, the warrior's boots will be needed no more. The picture is of total reversal, darkness to light, gloom to joy, despair to hope. God is promising to turn everything around. The question that everyone back then would have wanted to know the answer to then was, how? How was God going to do this? Well, in verse 6, we get a very surprising answer. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Now, wait a minute. God is going to turn everything around. He's going to defeat all of his people's enemies through the birth of a vulnerable child. Really? Who can this child possibly be? Now, at this point, I need to just pause a moment, especially for those of you who were not here this morning. Because we need to know that this is now the third time in three chapters that the birth of a child has been mentioned by Isaiah. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, there's this amazing prophecy that a child would be born who was called Emmanuel. And his birth would be a sign that God was with his people. And we saw this morning how this baby would be a sign that God really would defend his people and that they should trust him for everything. Then in chapter 8, the next chapter, we saw that a child was born to Isaiah. This child was the sign that God really would defeat his people's enemies, which indeed he did. 
Isaiah's son was the first fulfillment of God's promise of Emmanuel in chapter 7. Yet now in chapter 9, this promise of a baby called Emmanuel takes another giant leap forward. Isaiah's son might have been the first fulfillment, but the child promised here would be its completion. Through the child of chapter 9, God would keep all of his promises and save his people for good. Through the child promised in chapter 9, God would literally be Emmanuel with his people. It becomes clear very quickly in Isaiah 9 that one day a boy will be born who is no ordinary baby. Indeed, Isaiah begins to state that this child will be God himself. Just listen again to how he unfolds this truth. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, he's going to rule over all people. Verse 6 again, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They are incredible titles. Then verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Make no mistake, says Isaiah, this will be no ordinary king. No ordinary Israelite. This will be no mere human baby. No ordinary son of David. This one will be special. And this is why it is this prophecy that gave the people hope. Even 700 years later, just before the birth of Jesus, the people knew that this prophecy still had not come true. The child was still to come. And they knew that for certain because when this boy arrives, everything will change. Darkness will be transformed by the greatest of lights. So that is what the original prophecy meant. That is why this is the one prophecy, perhaps above all others, that the people held onto. But just before we go on and finish looking at how it was fulfilled, I just want us to notice three quick things. Three quick lessons that we learn about God here that we may find helpful for today. First of all, a note about God's discipline. Notice how the prophecy started. God had humbled Israel. It was him that had sent Assyria against them to teach them a lesson, to discipline them for their wrongdoing. Yet in verse 1, we see why. Nevertheless, There'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land, but in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations. When God humbles a person or a nation, he does it for one reason, to bring honour 
Sometimes in life we go through dark times because God is trying to teach us a lesson. Sometimes God brings us down a peg or two in order that we recognise that we need him. But the only reason he does this is so he can raise us back up again. Many people struggle with the Old Testament. They struggle with this notion of a God who would send his own people into exile. But we see here that he did it for their own good. God never wants simply to destroy. He wants to bring the light and the joy and the freedom that we find in this prophecy. And maybe we feel tonight that we've been going through a really tough season. A season where God has been humbling us and teaching us a lesson. If so, remember, this is only so that he can bring honour. If we turn to him and trust him in the darkness, he will lift us up. That's why God disciplined the people in Isaiah's day, and it may be why he's doing it to us today. The second lesson I think we learn here is a lesson about humility. Notice the startling truth about this saviour that Isaiah foresees. In order to turn the darkness into light, God will come as a child. God's answer to all the oppression and all the hostility in the world is not to come as a jack-booted warrior and smash the opposition. He gently slips in beside us as a child. God comes to take away our burdens without becoming a greater oppressor himself. He comes as the Prince of Peace. Those involved in the conflict in Israel-Gaza at the moment need to learn this lesson. But we as ordinary people need to do it as well. If you're put off Christianity by a picture of God that sees him as some sort of overbearing tyrant, you've got the wrong image. Yes, God is holy and he's powerful, but he comes humbly like a child. He lifts our burdens without tying us up with more. We experience grace without the rituals of stale religion. We experience forgiveness without having to strive to earn it. We have a gentle, humble, loving God who never forces himself upon us, but invites us to come to him. And the third lesson I think we learn here to keep that last one in perspective is that although our God is gentle and humble like a child, he is also powerful. This prophecy pictured a truly phenomenal child. Listen again to those titles. Wonderful counsellor. It's the picture of a king who determines upon and carries out the exact plan of action. Mighty God. This picture of a powerful, divine figure always standing at your side, fighting your cause. Everlasting Father. This picture of an enduring, compassionate provider and protector. Prince of Peace. The God who brings shalom. Much more than just the absence of war, but wholeness and restoration to individuals and society. God would send a saviour who was gentle and humble, 
but immensely powerful. I wonder for a moment which of those four titles we most need in our lives today. Do we long for guidance and counsel to make a big decision? Do we long for someone to stand up for us against the bullies? Do we long for someone to provide for our needs? Do we long for peace and calm from all our anxieties? God will send a saviour who will bring all of those things. It seems impossible that these four powerful characteristics match with a humble baby. But that is the glory and the majesty of God. It is the miracle of Christmas. And it is to that miraculous fulfilment that we turn now to finish. Israel's prophecies saw a bit more about the true Emmanuel, the mighty God with us, the God who would step into our world and turn darkness to light. Isaiah saw that God has so much zeal, so much love for his people that he will lift them from their disgrace. Through his great passion, forgiveness would be found. We read this prophecy every Christmas because we know that Jesus is and was and could only ever be the true fulfilment of it. Jesus was the child born. Jesus was the son of David, human like us, yet also mighty God. Jesus was the one who would take all of the sin and the oppression and the horror and the tragedy and the violence of life onto himself and give back righteousness and freedom and hope. Jesus is the great light that shines in the darkness and overcomes it. The prophecy of great reversal happens by Jesus coming and dying and rising again. But that then leaves us with a question. For 700 years, the residents of Israel waited on tenterhooks for this child to be born. But then when he came, they were so hardened by their suffering, most of them missed him. They missed this child king and his significance. So what about us? We all need help. We all need light. Will we allow Jesus to take up his government of our hearts? This Advent season, as we celebrate Jesus coming, let us invite Jesus to come into our lives once more. Because it's only then, when he is at his rightful place, that we truly come to know the benefits that we've been thinking of. Light, joy, abundance, freedom, peace, fulfillment. There is no other way. Jesus is the child born to us. Jesus is the light. Believe in him. And if you already do, tell this good news to someone who doesn't.